When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, Number One, Captain Reese. Of all the ships upon the blue, no ship contained a better crew than that of worthy Captain Reese, commanding of the mantelpiece. He was adored by all his men, for worthy Captain Reese, our end, did all that lay within him to promote the comfort of his crew. If ever they were dull or sad, their captain danced to them like mad, or told, to make the time pass by, droll legends of his infancy. A feather bed had every man, warm slippers and hot water can, brown Windsor from the captain's store, a valet, too, to every four. Did they with thirst in summer burn, lo, seltzer jeans at every turn, and on all very sultry days cream ices handed round on trays. Then currant wine and ginger pops stood handily on all the tops, and also, with amusement rife, a zoetrope or wheel of life. New volumes came across the sea from Mr. Mudie's library. The Times and Saturday Review beguiled the leisure of the crew. Kind-hearted Captain Reese N. was quite devoted to his men. In point of fact, good Captain Reese beatified the mantelpiece. One summer eve at half-past ten, he said, addressing all his men, Come, tell me please what I can do to please and gratify my crew. By any reasonable plan I'll make you happy if I can. My own convenience count as nil. It is my duty, and I will. Then up and answered William Lee, The kindly captain's coxswain he, A nervous, shy, low-spoken man, He cleared his throat and thus began, You have a daughter, Captain Reese, Ten female cousins and a niece, A ma, if what I'm told is true, Six sisters and an aunt or two. "'Now, somehow, sir, it seems to me, "'more friendly like we all should be "'if you united of em to unmarried members of the crew. "'If you'd ameliorate our life, "'let each select from them a wife. "'And as for nervous me, old pal, "'give me your own enchanting gal.' "'Good Captain Reese, that worthy man, "'debated on his coxswain's plan.' "'I quite agree,' he said, O oh, Bill. "'It is my duty, and I will. "'My daughter, that enchanting girl, "'has just been promised to an earl, "'and all my other family to peers of various degree. "'But what are dukes and viscounts "'to the happiness of all my crew? "'The word I gave you I'll fulfil. "'It is my duty, and I will.' As you desire, it shall befall. I'll settle thousands on you all, and I shall be, despite my hoard, the only bachelor on board. 
the boatswain of the mantelpiece, he blushed and spoke to Captain Rees. "'I beg your honour's leave,' he said, "'if you would wish to go and wed, "'I have a widowed mother who would be the very thing for you. "'She long has loved you from afar. "'She washes for you, Captain R.' "'The captain saw the dame that day, "'addressed her in his playful way. "'And did it want a wedding ring? "'It was a tempting ickle sing.' "'Well, well, the chaplain I will seek. "'We'll all be married this day week at yonder church upon the hill. "'It is my duty, and I will.' "'The sisters, cousins, aunts, and niece, "'and widowed Ma of Captain Rees, "'attended there as they were bid. "'It was their duty, and they did.'" End of Captain Rees from the Bab Ballads Ballad number two of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Rival Curates List while the poet trolls of Mr. Clayton Hooper, who had a cure of souls at Spiffton extra super. He lived on curds and whey, and daily sang their praises, and then he'd go and play with buttercups and daisies. Wild croquet, hooper band, and all the sports of mammon. He warred with cribbage, and he exorcised backgammon. His helmet was a glance that spoke of holy gladness, a saintly smile his lance, his shield a tear of sadness. His vicar smiled to see this armour on him buckled. With pardonable glee he blessed himself and chuckled. In mildness to abound my curate's sole design is, In all the country round there's none so mild as mine is. And Hooper, disinclined, his trumpet to be blowing, Yet didn't think you'd find a milder curate going. A friend arrived one day at Spiffton extra super, And in this shameful way he spoke to Mr. Hooper. You think your famous name for mildness can't be shaken, that none can blot your fame, but, Hooper, you're mistaken. Your mind is not as blank as that of Hopley Porter, who holds a curate's rank at ass's milk come water. He plays the airy flute and looks depressed and blighted, doves round about him toot, and lambkins dance delighted. He labours more than you at worsted work, and frames it. In old maids' albums, too, sticks seaweed, yes, and names it. The tempter said his say, which pierced him like a needle. He summoned straight away his sexton and his beadle. These men were men who could hold liberal opinions. On Sundays they were good, on weekdays they were minions. To Hopley Porter go, your fare I will afford you. Deal him a deadly blow, and blessing shall reward you. But stay, I do not like undue assassination, and so, before you strike, make this communication. I'll give him this one chance. If he'll more gaily bear him, play croquet, smoke, and dance, I willingly will spare him. 
they went, those minions true, to asses' milk come water, and told their errand to the Reverend Hopley Porter. What? said that Reverend Gent. Dance through my hours of leisure, smoke, bathe myself with scent, play croquet. Oh, with pleasure! Wear all my hair in curl, stand at my door and wink so at every passing girl. My brothers, I should think so. For years I've longed for some excuse for this revulsion. Now that excuse has come. I do it on compulsion. He smoked and winked away this reverend Hopley Porter. The deuce there was to pay at asses' milk come water. And Hooper holds his ground in mildness daily growing. They think him all around the mildest curate going. End of ballad number two, the rival curates from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number three of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Only a dancing girl. Only a dancing girl with an unromantic style with borrowed colour and curl, with fixed mechanical smile, with many a hackneyed while, with ungrammatical lips and corns that mar her trips. Hung from the flies in air, she acts a palpable lie. She's as little a fairy there as unpoetical I. I hear you asking why, why in the world I sing this tawdry, tinselled thing. No airy fairy she, as she hangs in arsenic green, from a highly impossible tree, in a highly impossible scene, herself not over-clean. For fays don't suffer, I'm told, from bunions, coughs, or cold. And stately dames that bring their daughters there to see Pronounce the dancing thing no better than she should be, With her skirt at her shameful knee, and her painted, tainted fizz. Ah, matron, which of us is? And in sooth it oft occurs that while these matrons sigh, Their dresses are lower than hers, and sometimes half as high, and their hair is hair they buy, and they use their glasses too in a way she'd blush to do. But change her gold and green for a coarse merino gown, and see her upon the scene of her home when coaxing down her drunken father's frown in his squalid, cheerless den. She's a fairy, truly, then. End of ballad number three, only a dancing girl from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number four of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. General John. The bravest names for fire and flames and all that mortal durst were General John and Private James of the Sixty-Seventy-First. 
General John was a soldier tried, a chief of warlike dons. A haughty stride and a withering pride were Major General John's. A sneer would play on his martial fizz, superior birth to show. Pish was a favourite word of his, and he often said, Ho, ho! Full Private James described might be as a man of a mournful mind. No characteristic tray had he of any distinctive kind. From the ranks one day cried Private James, Oh, Major General John, I've doubts of our respective names my mournful mind upon. A glimmering thought occurs to me, its source I can't unearth, but I've a kind of a notion we were cruelly changed at birth. I've a strange idea that each other's names we've each of us here got on. Such things have been, said Private James. They have, sneered General John. My General John, I swear upon my oath I think tis so. Pish, proudly sneered his General John, and he also said, Ho, ho! My General John, my General John, my General John, quoth he, This aristocratical sneer upon your face I blush to see. No truly great or generous cove deserving of them names Would sneer at a fixed idea that's drove in the mind of a private James. Said General John, Upon your claims no need your breath to waste. If this is a joke, full private James, it's a joke of doubtful taste. But being a man of doubtless worth, if you feel certain quite that we were probably changed at birth, I'll venture to say you're right. So General John, as Private James, fell in parade upon, and Private James, by change of names, was Major General John. End of Ballad Number Four. General John from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ballad number five of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. To a little maid by a policeman. Come with me, little maid. Nay, shrink not thus afraid, I'll harm thee not. Fly not, my love, from me. I have a home for thee, a fairy grot, Where mortal eye can rarely pry, There shall thy dwelling be. List to me while I tell the pleasures of that cell, O little maid. What though its couch be rude, Homely the only food within its shade, no thought of care can enter there, No vulgar swain intrude. Come with me, little maid, Come to the rocky shade I love to sing. Live with us, maiden rare, Come, 
for we want thee there, thou elfin thing, to work thy spell in some cool cell in stately Pentonville. End of ballad number five to a little maid by a policeman from the Bad Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number six of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. John and Freddy. John courted lovely Mary Ann, so likewise did his brother Freddy. Fred was a very soft young man, while John, though quick, was most unsteady. Fred was a graceful kind of youth, but John was very much the strongest. Oh, dance away, said she. In truth, I'll marry him who dances longest. John tries the maiden's taste to strike with gay, grotesque, outrageous dresses, and dances comically like Clodosh and co. at the princesses. But Freddy tries another style. He knows some graceful steps and does em. A breathing poem, woman's smile, a man all poesy and bosom. Now Freddy's operatic pa, now Johnny's hornpipe seems entrapping, now Freddy's graceful entrechat, now Johnny's skilful cellar-flapping. For many hours, for many days, for many weeks performed each brother, for each was active in his ways, and neither would give in to t'other. After a month of this, they say, the maid was getting bored and moody, a wandering curate passed that way and talked a lot of goody-goody. Oh, my, said he with solemn frown, I tremble for each dancing freighter, like unregenerated clown and harlequin at some theatre. He showed that men in dancing do both impiously and absurdly, and proved his proposition true with firstly, secondly, and thirdly. For months both John and Freddy danced, the curate's protest little heeding. For months the curate's words enhanced the sinfulness of their proceeding. At length they bowed to nature's rule. Their steps grew feeble and unsteady, till Freddy fainted on a stool, and Johnny on the top of Freddy. Decide, quoth they, let him be named who henceforth as his wife may rank you. I've changed my views, the maiden said. I only marry curates, thank you. Says Freddy, here is goings on. To bust myself with rage I'm ready. I'll be a curate, whispers John. And I, exclaimed poetic Freddy. But while they read for it, these chaps, the curate booked the maiden bonny. And when she's buried him, perhaps she'll marry Frederick or Johnny. End of ballad number six, John and Freddy, from the Bad Ballads. This recording is in the public domain.
Ballad Number no. Seven of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Sir Guy the Crusader. Sir Guy was a doughty crusader, a muscular knight, ever ready to fight, a very determined invader, and Dicky de Lyon's delight. Lenore was a Saracen maiden, brunette, statuesque, the reverse of grotesque. Her pa was a bagman from Aden, her mother she played in burlesque. A coryphée, pretty and loyal, in amber and red the ballet she led. Her mother performed at the royal, Lenore at the Saracen's head. Of face and of figure majestic, she dazzled the sits, ecstaticized pits. Her troubles were only domestic, but drove her half out of her wits. Her father incessantly lashed her. On water and bread she was grudgingly fed. Whenever her father he thrashed her, her mother sat down on her head. Guy saw her and loved her with reason, for beauty so bright sent him mad with delight. He purchased a stall for the season and sat in it every night. His views were exceedingly proper. He wanted to wed, so he called at her shed, and saw her progenitor whop her, her mother sit down on her head. So pretty, said he, and so trusting, you brute of a dad, you unprincipled cad, your conduct is really disgusting. Come, come, now admit it's too bad. You're a turbaned old Turk and malignant. Your daughter Lenore I intensely adore, and I cannot help feeling indignant, a fact that I hinted before. To see a fond father employing a, a deuce of a nout for to bang her about to a sensitive lover's annoying, said the bagman, Crusader, get out. Says Guy, shall a warrior laden with a big spiky knob sit in peace on his cob while a beautiful Saracen maiden is whipped by a Saracen snob? To London I'll go from my charmer, which he did with his lute, seven hats and a flute, and was nabbed for his Sydenham armour at Mr. Ben Samuel's suit. Sir Guy, he was lodged in the compter. Her pa, in a rage, died, don't know his age. His daughter, she married the prompter, grew bulky, and quitted the stage. End of ballad number seven, Sir Guy the Crusader from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number eight of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Haunted. Haunted, I, in a social way, by a body of ghosts in dread array. But no conventional spectres, they, appalling, grim, and tricky. I quail at mine as I'd never quail at a fine traditional spectre pale, With a turnip head and a ghostly wail, and a splash of blood on the dicky. Mine are horrible social ghosts. Speeches and women and guests and hosts, Weddings and morning calls and toasts, in every bad variety. Ghosts who hover about the grave Of all that's manly, free, and brave. You'll find their names on the architrave Of that charnel-house society. 
Black Monday, black as its schoolroom ink, with its dismal boys that snivel and think of its nauseous messes to eat and drink, and its frozen tank to wash in. That was the first that brought me grief, and made me weep till I sought relief in an emblematical handkerchief to choke such baby bosh in. First and worst in the grim array, ghosts of ghosts that have gone their way, which I wouldn't revive for a single day, for all the wealth of Plutus, are the horrible ghosts that school days scared. If the classical ghost that Brutus dared was the ghost of his Caesar unprepared, I'm sure I pity Brutus. I passed a critical seventeen, the ghost of that terrible wedding scene, when an elderly colonel stole my queen and woke my dream of heaven. No schoolgirl decked in her nurse-room curls was my gushing innocent queen of pearls, if she wasn't a girl of a thousand girls, she was one of forty-seven. I see the ghost of my first cigar, of the thence arising family jar, of my maiden brief. I was at the bar, and I called the judge a wash-up. Of reckless days and reckless nights, with wrenched-off knockers, extinguished lights, unholy songs and tipsy fights, which I strove in vain to hush up. Ghosts of fraudulent joint-stock banks, ghosts of copy declined with thanks, of novels returned in endless ranks, and thousands more I suffer. The only line to fitly grace my humble tomb when I've run my race is, Reader, this is the resting place of an unsuccessful duffer. I fought them all, these ghosts of mine, but the weapons I've used are size and brine, and now that I'm nearly forty-nine, old age is my chiefest bogey, for my hair is thinning away at the crown, and the silver fights with the worn-out brown, and a general verdict sets me down as an irreclaimable fogey. End of Ballad Number 8 Haunted from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number nine of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Bishop and the Busman. It was a bishop bold, and London was his see. He was short and stout and round about and zealous as could be. It also was a Jew who drove a Putney bus, for flesh of swine, however fine, he did not care a cuss. His name was Hashbaz Ben, and Jedediah too, and Solomon and Zabulon, this bus-directing Jew. The bishop said, said he, I'll see what I can do to Christianize and make you wise, you poor benighted Jew. So every blessed day that bus he rode outside, from Fulham town both up and down, and loudly thus he cried, His name is Hashbaz Ben, and Jedediah too, and Solomon and Zebulon this bus-directing Jew. 
At first the busman smiled, and rather liked the fun. He merely smiled, that Hebrew child, and said, Eccentric one. And gay young dogs would wait to see the bus go by, These gay young dogs in striking togs, To hear the bishop cry, Observe his grisly beard, his race it clearly shows, He sticks no fork in ham or pork, Observe, my friends, his nose. His name is Hashbaz Ben, and Jedediah too, And Solomon and Zabulon, this bus-directing Jew. But though at first amused, yet after seven years This Hebrew child got rather riled, and melted into tears. He really almost feared to leave his poor abode, His nose and name and beard became a byword on that road. At length he swore an oath, the reason he would know. I'll call and see why ever he does persecute me so. The good old bishop sat on his ancestral chair. The busman came, sent up his name, and laid his grievance bare. Benighted Jew, he said, the good old bishop did, Be Christian, you, instead of Jew, become a Christian kid. I'll ne'er annoy you more. Indeed, replied the Jew, shall I be freed? You will indeed. Then done, said he, with you. The organ which in man between the eyebrows grows, fell from his face, and in its place he found a Christian nose. His tangled Hebrew beard, which to his waist came down, was now a pair of whiskers fair, his name Adolphus Brown. He wedded in a year that prelate's daughter Jane. He's grown quite fair, has auburn hair, his wife is far from plain. End of ballad number nine, The Bishop and the Busman, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number ten of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Troubadour. A troubadour he played without a castle wall. Within, a hapless maid responded to his call. O willow, woe is me, alack and well a day! If I were only free, I'd hie me far away. Unknown her face and name, but this he knew right well. The maiden's wailing came from out a dungeon cell. A hapless woman lay within that dungeon grim, That fact, I've heard him say, was quite enough for him. I will not sit, or lie, or eat or drink, I vow, Till thou art free as I, or I as pent as thou. Her tears then ceased to flow, her wails no longer rang, And tuneful in her woe the prisoned maiden sang, O stranger, as you play, I recognize your touch, 
and all that I can say is thank you very much. He seized his clarions straight, and blew thereat until a warden oped the gate. Oh, what might be your will? I've come, sir knave, to see the master of these halls. A maid unwillingly lies prisoned in their walls. With barely stifled sigh, that porter drooped his head. With teardrops in his eye, a many, sir, he said. He stayed to hear no more, but pushed that porter by, and shortly stood before Sir Hugh de Peckham Rye. Sir Hugh, he darkly frowned. What would you, sir, with me? The troubadour he downed upon his bended knee. I've come to Peckham Rye to do a Christian task. You ask me what would I? It is not much I ask. Release these maidens, sir, whom you dominion o'er, particularly her upon the second floor. And if you don't, my lord, he here stood bolt upright, and tapped a tailor's sword. Come out, you cad, and fight! Sir Hugh, he called, and ran the warden from the gate. Go, show this gentleman the maid in forty-eight. By many a cell they passed, and stopped at length before a portal bolted fast. The man unlocked the door. He called inside the gate with coarse and brutal shout, Come, step it, forty-eight! And forty-eight stepped out. They gets it pretty hot, the maidens, what we cotch. Two years this lady's got for collaring a watch. Oh, ah, uh, indeed, I see, the troubadour exclaimed. If I may make so free, how is this castle named? The warden's eyelids fill, and sighing he replied, Of gloomy Pentonville, this is the female side. The minstrel did not wait the warden stout to thank, But recollected straight hid business at the bank. End of Ballad Number 10 The Troubadour from the Bab Ballads This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number eleven of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Ferdinando and Elvira, or the Gentle Pieman. Part one. At a pleasant evening party, I had taken down to supper one whom I will call Elvira, and we talked of love and tupper. Mr. Tupper and the poets, very lightly with them dealing, for I've always been distinguished for a strong poetic feeling. Then we let off paper crackers, each of which contained a motto, and she listened while I read them, till her mother told her not to. Then she whispered, To the ballroom we had better, dear, be walking. If we stop down here much longer, really people will be talking. There were noblemen in coronets and military cousins, there were captains by the hundred, there were baronets by dozens. Yet she heeded not their offers, but dismissed them with a blessing. Then she let down all her back hair, which had taken long in dressing. 
Then she had convulsive sobbings in her agitated throttle. Then she wiped her pretty eyes and smelt her pretty smelling bottle. So I whispered, "'Dear Elvira, say, what can the matter be with you? Does anything you've eaten, darling Popsy, disagree with you?' But spite of all I said, her sobs grew more and more distressing, and she tore her pretty back hair, which had taken long in dressing. Then she gazed upon the carpet, at the ceiling, then above me, and she whispered, "'Ferdinando, do you really, really love me?' "'Love you,' said I. Then I sighed, and then I gazed upon her sweetly, for I think I do this sort of thing particularly neatly. "'Send me to the Arctic regions, or illimitable Asia, on a scientific goose-chase, with my coxwell or my glacier.' Tell me whither I may hie me, tell me, dear one, that I may know, is it up the highest Andes, down a horrible volcano? But she said, it isn't polar bears or hot volcanic grottos, only find out who it is that writes those lovely cracker mottos. Part 2 Tell me, Henry Wadsworth, Alfred, Poet Close, or Mr. Tupper, do you write the bonbon mottoes my Elvira pulls at supper? But Henry Wadsworth smiled and said he had not had that honour, and Alfred too disclaimed the words that told so much upon her. Mr. Martin Tupper, poet close, I beg of you inform us. But my question seemed to throw them both into a rage enormous. Mr. Close expressed a wish that he could only get an eye to me, and Mr. Martin Tupper sent the following reply to me. A fool is bent upon a twig, but wise men dread a bandit, which I know was very clever, but I didn't understand it. Seven weary years I wandered, Patagonia, China, Norway, till at last I sank exhausted at a pastry-cook his doorway. There were fuchsias and geraniums and daffodils and myrtle, so I entered and I ordered half a basin of mock turtle. He was plump and he was chubby, he was smooth and he was rosy, and his little wife was pretty and particularly cosy. And he chirped and sang and skipped about and laughed with laughter hearty. He was wonderfully active for so very stout a party. And I said, Oh, gentle pieman, why so very, very merry? Is it purity of conscience, or your one and seven sherry? But he answered, I'm so happy, no profession could be dearer. If I am not humming tra-la-la, I'm singing tira-lira. First I go and make the patties and the puddings and the jellies. Then I make a sugar bird-cage, which upon a table swell is. Then I polish all the silver, which a supper-table lacquers. Then I write the pretty mottoes which you find inside the crackers. Found at last, I madly shouted. Gentle pieman, you astound me. Then I waved the turtle soup enthusiastically round me, and I shouted and I danced until he'd quite a crowd around him, and I rushed away, exclaiming, I have found him, I have found him. And I heard the gentle pieman in the road behind me trilling, Tira lira, stop him, stop him, tra-la-la, the soup's a shilling. But until I reached Elvira's home, I never, never waited, and Elvira to her Ferdinand's irrevocably mated. 
End of ballad number 11, Ferdinando and Elvira or the Gentle Pieman, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 12 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Lorenzo de Lardi Delilah de Lardi adored the very correctest of cards, Lorenzo de Lardi, a lord, he was one of Her Majesty's guards. Delilah de Lardi was fat, Delilah de Lardi was old, no doubt in the world about that, but Delilah de Lardi had gold. Lorenzo de Lardi was tall, the flower of maidenly pets, young ladies would love at his call, but Lorenzo de Lardi had debts. His money position was queer, and one of his favourite freaks was to hide himself three times a year in Paris for several weeks. Many days didn't pass him before he fanned himself into a flame for a beautiful damned du comptoir, and this was her singular name. Alice Eulalie Coraline, Euphrosine Colombina Therese, Juliette Stephanie Celestine, Charlotte Russe de la Sauce Mayonnaise. She booked all the orders and tin, accoutred in showy falal, at a two-fifty restaurant in the glittering Palais Royal. He'd gaze in her orbit of blue, her hand he would tenderly squeeze, but the words of her tongue that he knew were limited strictly to these. Coraline, Celestine, Eulalie, Houpla, je vous aime, oui, monsieur, combien donnez-moi aujourd'hui, Bonjour, mademoiselle, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle de la Sauce Mayonnaise was a witty and beautiful miss, extremely correct in her ways, but her English consisted of this. Oh, my pretty man, if you please, Blomboudin, Biftec, Curry Lamb, Bulldog, Two-Franc Half, Quite the Cheese, Rose Beef, Me Speak English, Goddam. He'd gaze in her eyes all the day, admiring their sparkle and dance, and list while she rattled away in the musical accents of France. A waiter, for seasons before, had basked in her beautiful gaze, and burnt to dismember, milor, he loved de la sauce mayonnaise. He said to her, Méchante Thérèse, avec désespoir tu m'accables, Penses-tu de la sauce mayonnaise, ces intentions sont honorables? Flattez toujours, ma belle, si tu oses. Je me vengerai ainsi, ma chère. Je lui dirai de quoi l'on compose volovant à la financière. Lord Lardy knew nothing of this. The waiter's devotion ignored, but he gazed on the beautiful miss and never seemed weary or bored. The waiter would screw up his nerve, his fingers he'd snap and he'd dance. And Lord Lardy would smile and observe, How strange are the customs of France! Well, after delaying a space, his tradesman no longer would wait. Returning to England apace, he yielded himself to his fate. Lord Lardy espoused with a groan Miss Dardy's developing charms, and agreed to tag on to his own her name and her newly found arms. The waiter, 
He knelt at the toes of an ugly and thin coryphée, who danced in the hindermost rows at the Théâtre des Variétés. Mademoiselle de la Sauce Mayonnaise didn't yield to a gnawing despair, but married a soldier, and plays as a pretty and pert vivandière. End of ballad number 12, Lorenzo de Lardi, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 13 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Disillusioned by an ex-enthusiast. Oh, that my soul its gods could see, as years ago they seemed to me, when first I painted them, invested with the circumstance of old conventional romance, exploded theorem. The bard who could, all men above, inflame my soul with songs of love, and with his verse inspire the craven soul who feared to die with all the glow of chivalry, and old heroic fire. I found him in a beer-house tap, awaking from a gin-born nap, with pipe and sloven dress, amusing chums who fooled his bent with muddy maudlin sentiment and tipsy foolishness. The novelist whose painting pen to legions of fictitious men a real existence lends, Brain people whom we rarely fail whene'er we hear their names to hail as old and welcome friends, I found in clumsy snuffy suit, in seedy glove and blucher boot, uncomfortably big, particularly commonplace, with vulgar, coarse, stock-broking face, and spectacles and wig. My favourite actor, who at will with mimic woe my eyes could fill with unaccustomed brine, a being who appeared to me, before I knew him well, to be a song incarnadine, I found a coarse unpleasant man, with speckled chin, unhealthy, wan, of self-importance full, existing in an atmosphere that reeked of gin and pipes and beer, conceited, fractious, dull. The warrior, whose ennobled name is woven with his country's fame, triumphant over all, I found weak, palsied, bloated, blear. His province seemed to be to leer at bonnets in Pall Mall. Would that ye always shone, who write, bathed in your own innate limelight, and ye who battles wage, or that in darkness I had died before my soul had ever sighed to see you off the stage. End of ballad number 13 Disillusioned by an ex-enthusiast from the Bab Ballads This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 14 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman Babette's Love Babette, she was a fisher gal, with jupons striped and cap in crimps. She passed her days inside the hull, or catching little nimble shrimps. Yet she was sweet as flowers in May, with no professional bouquet. 
Jaco was of the customs bold an officer at gay Boulogne. He loved Babette, his love he told, and sighed, Oh, soyez-vous my own. But non, said she, Jaco, my pet, vous êtes trop scraggy, poor Babette. Of one alone I nightly dream, an able mariner is he, and gaily serves the general steam boat navigation company. I'll marry him if he but will. His name I rather think is Bill. I see him when he's not aware upon our hospitable coast, reclining with an easy air upon the port against a post, thinking of, I'll dare to say, his native Chelsea far away. Oh, mon, exclaimed the customs bold, mes yeux, he said, which means my eye. Oh, cher, he also cried, I'm told. Par jove, he added with a sigh. Oh, mon, oh, cher, mes yeux, par jove, je n'aime pas cet enticing cove. The panther's captain stood hard by. He was a man of morals strict. If e'er a sailor winked his eye, straightway he had that sailor licked. Mast-headed all, such was his code, who dashed or jiggered, blessed or blowed. He wept to think a tar of his should lean so gracefully on posts. He sighed and sobbed to think of this, on foreign, French, and friendly coasts. It's human nature, perhaps. If so, oh, isn't human nature low? He called his bill, who pulled his curl. He said, My bill, I understand you've captivated some young girl on this here French and foreign land. Her tender heart, your beauties jog. They do, you know they do, you dog. You have a graceful way, I learn, of leaning airily on posts, by which you've been and caused to burn a tender flame on these here coasts. A fisher girl, I much regret. Her age, sixteen, her name, Babette. You'll marry her, you gentle tar. Your union I myself will bless. And when you matrimonied are, I will appoint her stewardess. But William hitched himself and sighed, and cleared his throat, and thus replied, Not so. Unless you're fond of strife, you'd better mind your own affairs. I have an able-bodied wife awaiting me at whopping stairs. If all this here to her I tell, she'll larrup you, and me as well. Skin deep and valued at a pin is beauty such as Venus owns. Her beauty is beneath her skin, and lies in layers on her bones. The other sailors of the crew, they always calls her Whopping Sue. Oh ho, the captain said, I see. And is she then so very strong? She'd take your honour's scruff, said he, and pitch you over to belong. I pardon you, the captain said. The fair Babette you needn't wed. Perhaps the customs had his will and coaxed the scornful girl to wed. Perhaps the captain and his bill and William's little wife are dead. Or perhaps they're all alive and well. I cannot, cannot, cannot tell. End of ballad number 14, Babette's Love, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 15 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert.
Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. To my bride, whoever she may be. O oh, little maid, I do not know your name or who you are, so as a safe precaution I'll add, O oh, buxom widow, married dame, as one of these must be your present portion. Listen while I unveil prophetic law for you, and sing the fate that fortune has in store for you. You'll marry soon, within a year or twain, a bachelor of circa two and thirty. Tall, gentlemanly, but extremely plain, and when you're intimate you'll call him Bertie. Neat, dresses well, his temper has been classified as hasty, but he's very quickly pacified. You'll find him working mildly at the bar, after a touch at two or three professions. From easy affluence extremely far, a brief or two on circuit, soup at sessions, a pound or two from whist and backing horses, and, say, three hundred from his own resources. Quiet in harness, free from serious vice, his faults are not particularly shady. You'll never find him shy, for once or twice already he's been driven by a lady who parts with him, perhaps a poor excuse for him, because she hasn't any further use for him. O oh, bride of mine, tall, dumpy, dark, or fair, O oh, widow, wife may be, or blushing maiden, I've told your fortune, solved the gravest care with which your mind has hitherto been laden. I've prophesied correctly, never doubt it. Now tell me mine, and please be quick about it. You, only you, can tell me, and you will, to whom I'm destined shortly to be mated. Will she run up a heavy modiste's bill? If so, I want to hear her income stated. This is a point which interests me greatly. To quote the bard, Oh, have I seen her lately? Say, must I wait till husband number one is comfortably stowed away at Woking? How is her hair most usually done? And tell me, please, will she object to smoking? The colour of her eyes, too, you may mention. Come, Sibyl, prophesy. I'm all attention. End of ballad number 15 To my bride, whoever she may be, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 16 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Folly of Brown by a General Agent I knew a boar, a clownish card, his only friends were pigs and cows and the poultry of a small farmyard, who came into two hundred thousand. Good fortune worked no change in Brown, though she's a mighty social chymist. He was a clown, and by a clown I do not mean a pantomimist. It left him quiet, calm, and cool, though hardly knowing what a crown was, you can't imagine what a fool, poor, rich, uneducated Brown was. He scouted all who wished to come and give him monetary schooling, and I propose to give you some idea of his insensate fooling. 
I formed a company or two. Of course, I don't know what the rest meant. I formed them solely with a view to help him to a sound investment. Their objects were, their only cares, to justify their boards in showing a handsome dividend on shares, and keep their good promoter going. But no, the lout sticks to his brass, though shares at par I freely proffer. Yet, will it be believed, the ass declines with thanks my well-meant offer. He adds with Bumpkin's stolid grin, a weakly intellect denoting, he'd rather not invest it in a company of my promoting. "'You have two hundred thou or more,' said I. "'You'll waste it, lose it, lend it. Come, take my furnished second floor. I'll gladly show you how to spend it.' But will it be believed that he, with grin upon his face of poppy, declined my aid while thanking me for what he called my philanthropy? Some blind, suspicious fools rejoice in doubting friends who wouldn't harm them. They will not hear the charmer's voice, however wisely he may charm them. I showed him that his coat, all dust, top boots and cords, provoked compassion and proved that men of station must conform to the decrees of fashion. I showed him where to buy his hat, to coat him, trouser him, and boot him. But no, he wouldn't hear of that. He didn't think the style would suit him. I offered him a county seat, and made no end of an oration. I made it certainty complete, and introduced the deputation. But no, the clown my prospect blights. The worth of birth it surely teaches. Why should I want to spend my nights in Parliament a-making speeches? I haven't never been to school. I ain't had not no education. And I should surely be a fool to publish that to all the nation. I offered him a trotting horse. No hack had ever trotted faster. I also offered him, of course, a rare and curious old master. I offered to procure him weeds, wines fit for one in his position, but though an ass in all his deeds, he had learnt the meaning of commission. He called me thief the other day, and daily from his door he thrusts me. Much more of this, and soon I may begin to think that Brown mistrusts me. So deaf to all sound reasons rule this poor uneducated clown is, you cannot fancy what a fool poor rich uneducated brown is. End of ballad number 16, The Folly of Brown by a General Agent, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number seventeen of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Sir Macklin. Of all the youths I ever saw, none were so wicked, vain, or silly, so lost to shame and Sabbath law, as worldly Tom and Bob and Billy. For every Sabbath day they walked. Such was their gay and thoughtless nature, in parks or gardens, where they talked from three to six, or even later. 
Sir Macklin was a priest severe in conduct and in conversation. It did a sinner good to hear him deal in ratiocination. He could in every action show some sin, and nobody could doubt him. He argued high, he argued low, he also argued round about him. He wept to think each thoughtless youth contained of wickedness as skinful, and burnt to teach the awful truth that walking out on Sundays sinful. "'O oh, youths,' said he, "'I grieve to find the course of life you've been and hit on. "'Sit down,' said he, "'and never mind the pennies for the chairs you sit on. "'My opening head is Kensington. "'How walking there the sinner hardens, "'which, when I have enlarged upon, "'I go to, secondly, its gardens. "'My thirdly comprehendeth Hyde.' Of secrecy the guilts and shameses, my fourthly park, its verdure wide, my fifthly comprehends St. James's. That matter settled, I shall reach the sixthly in my solemn tether, and show that what is true of each is also true of all together. Then I shall demonstrate to you, according to the rules of Whateley, that what is true of all is true of each, considered separately. In lavish stream his accents flow, Tom, Bob, and Billy dare not flout him. He argued high, he argued low, he also argued round about him. Ha, ha, he said, you loathe your ways, you writhe at these my words of warning. In agony your hands you raise, and so they did, for they were yawning. To twenty-firstly on they go, the lads do not attempt to scout him. He argued high, he argued low, he also argued round about him. Ho, ho, he cries, you bow your crests, my eloquence has set you weeping, in shame you bend upon your breasts. And so they did, for they were sleeping, he proved them this, he proved them that, this good but wearisome ascetic. He jumped, and thumped upon his hat, he was so very energetic. His bishop at this moment chanced to pass, and found the road encumbered. He noticed how the churchman danced, and how his congregation slumbered. The hundred and eleventh head the priest completed of his stricture, "'Oh, bosh!' the worthy bishop said, and walked him off as in the picture. End of ballad number 17, Sir Macklin, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 18 of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. THE YARN OF THE NANCY BELL T'was on the shores that round our coast from Deal to Ramsgate span that I found alone on a piece of stone an elderly naval man. His hair was weedy, his beard was long, and weedy and long was he, and I heard this white on the shore recite in a singular minor key, 
Oh, I am a cook and a captain bold, and the mate of the Nancy Brig, and a bosun tight and a midshipmite, and the crew of the captain's gig. And he shook his fists and he tore his hair, till I really felt afraid, for I couldn't help thinking the man had been drinking, and so I simply said, Oh, elderly man, it's little I know of the duties of men of the sea, and I'll eat my hand if I understand however you can be at once a cook and a captain bold, and the mate of the Nancy Brig, and a bosun tight, and a midshipmite, and the crew of the captain's gig. Then he gave a hitch to his trousers, which is a trick all seamen larn, and having got rid of a thumping quid, he spun this painful yarn. "'Twas in the good ship Nancy Bell that we sailed to the Indian Sea, and there on a reef we come to grief, which has often occurred to me. And pretty nigh all the crew was drowned, there was seventy-seven of soul, and only ten of the Nancy's men said, Here, to the muster-roll. There was me, and the cook, and the captain bold, and the mate of the Nancy Brig, and the bosun tight, and a midshipmite, and the crew of the captain's gig. For a month we ate neither whittles nor drink, till a hungry we did feel. So we drawed a lot, and according shot the captain for our meal. The next lot fell to the Nancy's mate, and a delicate dish he made. Then our appetite with the midshipmite we seven survivors stayed. And then we murdered the bosun tight, and he much resembled pig. Then we whittled free did the cook and me on the crew of the captain's gig. Then only the cook and me was left, and the delicate question which of us two goes to the kettle arose, and we argued it out as sitch. For I loved that cook as a brother, I did, and the cook he worshipped me. But we'd both be blowed if we'd either be stowed in the other chap's hold, you see. I'll be eat if you dines off me, says Tom. Yes, that, says I, you'll be. I'm boiled if I die, my friend, quoth I. And exactly so, quoth he. Says he, dear James, to murder me were a foolish thing to do. For don't you see that you can't cook me? while I can, and will, cook you. So he boils the water, and takes the salt and the pepper in portions true which he never forgot, and some chopped shallot, and some sage and parsley too. Come here, says he with a proper pride, which his smiling features tell. Twill soothing be if I let you see how extremely nice you'll smell. And he stirred it round and round and round, And he sniffed at the foaming froth, When I ups with his heels and smothers his squeals In the scum of the boiling broth. And I eat that cook in a week or less, And, as I eating be the last of his chops, Why, I almost drops, for a wessel in sight I see. And I never laugh, and I never smile, and I never lark nor play, but sit and croak, and a single joke I have, which is to say, Oh, I am a cook and a captain bold, and the mate of the Nancy Brig, and a bosun tight, and a midshipmite, 
and the crew of the captain's gig. End of ballad number 18, The Yarn of the Nancy Bell, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 19 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Bishop of Rumtifoo. From east and south the holy clan of bishops gathered to a man. To synod called Pan-Anglican, in flocking crowds they came. Among them was a bishop who had lately been appointed to the balmy isle of Rumtifoo, and Peter was his name. His people, twenty-three in sum, they played the eloquent tum-tum, and lived on scalps, served up in rum, the only sauce they knew. When first good Bishop Peter came, for Peter was that bishop's name, to humour them he did the same as they of Rumtifoo. His flock, I've often heard him tell, his name was Peter, loved him well, and, summoned by the sound of bell, in crowds together came. O oh, Massa, why you go away? O oh, Massa, Peter, please to stay. They called him Peter, people say, because it was his name. He told them all good boys to be, and sailed away across the sea. At London Bridge that bishop he arrived one Tuesday night, and as that night he homeward strode to his pan-Anglican abode, he passed along the borough road, and saw a gruesome sight. He saw a crowd assembled round a person dancing on the ground, who straight began to leap and bound with all his might and main. To see that dancing man he stopped, who twirled and wriggled, skipped and hopped, then down incontinently dropped, and then sprang up again. The bishop chuckled at the sight. This style of dancing would delight a simple rumtifuselite. I'll learn it if I can, to please the tribe when I get back. He begged the man to teach his knack. Right reverend sir, in half a crack, replied that dancing man. The dancing man he worked away and taught the bishop every day. The dancer skipped like any fay. Good Peter did the same. The bishop buckled to his task with battement and pas de basque. I'll tell you, if you care to ask, that Peter was his name. Come, walk like this, the dancer said. Stick out your toes, stick in your head. Stalk on with quick galvanic tread, your fingers thus extend. The attitude's considered quaint. The weary bishop, feeling faint, replied, I do not say it ain't, but time, my Christian friend. We now proceed to something new, dance as the pains and glories do, like this, one, two, one, two, one, two. The bishop, never proud, but in an overwhelming heat, his name was Peter, I repeat, performed the pain and glory feat, and puffed his thanks aloud. Another game the dancer planned. Just take your ankle in your hand, and try, my lord, if you can stand, your body stiff and stark. If, when revisiting your sea, you learnt to hop on shore, like me, the novelty would striking be, and must attract remark. 
No, said the worthy bishop, no, that is a length to which I trow colonial bishops cannot go. You may express surprise at finding bishops deal in pride, but if that trick I ever tried, I should appear undignified in Rumtifoozle's eyes. The islanders of Rumtifoo are well-conducted persons who approve a joke as much as you, and laugh at it as such. But if they saw their bishop land his legs supported in his hand, the joke they wouldn't understand. Twould pain them very much. End of ballad number 19, The Bishop of Rumtifoo, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 20 of The Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Precocious Baby, A Very True Tale To be sung to the air of the Whistling Oyster An elderly person, a prophet by trade, with his quips and tips on withered old lips, he married a young and a beautiful maid, the cunning old blade. Though rather decayed, he married a beautiful, beautiful maid. She was only eighteen, and as fair as could be, with her tempting smiles and maidenly wiles. And he was a trifle past seventy-three. Now what she could see is a puzzle to me in a prophet of seventy, seventy-three. Of all their acquaintances, bidden or bad, with their loud high jinks and underbred winks, none thought they'd a family have, but they had, a dear little lad who drove em half mad, for he turned out a horribly fast little cad. For when he was born he astonished all by, with the, Lord, dear me, did ever you see? He had a pipe in his mouth and a glass in his eye, a hat all awry, an octagon tie and a miniature, miniature glass in his eye. He grumbled at wearing a frock and a cap with his, Oh dear, oh, and his, hang it, who know, and he turned up his nose at his excellent pap. My friends, it's a tap that is not worth a rap. Now this was remarkably excellent pap. He'd chuck his nurse under the chin, and he'd say with his, fal-lal-lal, Ooh, deuced fine gal! This shocking precocity drove em away. A month from today is as long as I'll stay, then I'd wish, if you please, for to toddle away. His father, a simple old gentleman, he, with nursery rhyme and once on a time, would tell him the story of little Bo P. So pretty was she, so pretty and we, as pretty, as pretty, as pretty could be. But the babe, with a dig that would startle an ox with his k, oh my, go along with you, fie, would exclaim, I'm afraid o' a socking old fox. Now a father it shocks and it whitens his locks when his little babe calls him a shocking old fox. The name of his father he'd couple and pair with his ill-bred laugh and insolent chaff with those of the nursery heroines rare. Virginia the fair, or good golden hair, till the nuisance was more than a prophet could bear. There's Jill and White Cat, said the bold little brat with his loud ha ha. Oo sly ickle pa, with you beauty, Bo Peep, and oo Mrs. Jack Spratt. 
"'I've noticed you pat my pretty white cat. "'I think dear Mamma ought to know about that.' "'He early determined to marry and wive, "'for better or worse, with his elderly nurse, "'which the poor little boy didn't live to contrive, "'his health didn't thrive. "'No longer alive, he died an enfeebled old dotard at five. Moral. Now elderly men of the bachelor crew, with wrinkled hose and spectacled nose, don't marry at all, you may take it as true, if ever you do the step you will rue, for your babes will be elderly, elderly too. End of ballad number 20, The Precocious Baby, A Very True Tale, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 21 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. To Phoebe Gentle, modest little flower, sweet epitome of May, love me but for half an hour, love me, love me, little fay. Sentences so fiercely flaming in your tiny shell-like ear, I should always be exclaiming if I loved you, Phoebe, dear. Smiles that thrill from any distance shed upon me while I sing. Please ecstaticize existence. Love me, O oh, thou fairy thing. Words like these outpouring sadly you'd perpetually hear if I loved you fondly, madly. But I do not, Phoebe, dear. End of ballad number 21 to Phoebe from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 22 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Baines Carew, Gentleman. Of all the good attorneys who have placed their names upon the roll, but few could equal Baines Carew for tender-heartedness and soul. Whene'er he heard a tale of woe from client A or client B, his grief would overcome him so he'd scarce have strength to take his fee. It laid him up for many days when duty led him to distrain, and serving writs, although it pays, gave him excruciating pain. He made out costs, distrained for rent, foreclosed and sued with moistened eye. No bill of costs could represent the value of such sympathy. No charges can approximate the worth of sympathy with woe, although I think I ought to state he did his best to make them so. Of all the many clients who had mustered round his legal flag, no single client of the crew was half so dear as Captain Bag. Now Captain Bag had bowed him to a heavy matrimonial yoke. His wifey had of faults a few, she never could resist a joke. Her chaff at first he meekly bore, till unendurable it grew. To stop this persecution sore, I will consult my friend Carew. And when Carew's advice I've got, divorce Armensa I shall try. A legal separation, not our vinculo conjugii. O oh, Baines Carew, my woe I've kept a secret hitherto, you know. 
and Baines Carew, Esquire, he wept to hear that Bag had any woe. My case indeed is passing sad. My wife, whom I considered true, with brutal conduct drives me mad. I am appalled, said Baines Carew. What sound the matrimonial knell of worthy people such as these? Why was I an attorney? Well, go on to the Civitia, please. Domestic bliss has proved my bane, a harder case you never heard. My wife, in other matters sane, pretends that I'm a dicky-bird. She makes me sing to wit to we, and stand upon a rounded stick, and always introduces me to every one as pretty Dick. Oh, dear, said weeping Baines Carew, this is the direst case I know. I'm grieved, said Bag, at paining you, to Cobb and Pothethwaite I'll go. To Cobb's cold calculating ear my gruesome sorrows I'll impart. No, stop, said Baines, I'll dry my tear and steal my sympathetic heart. She makes me perch upon a tree, rewarding me with sweetie, nice, and threatens to exhibit me with four or five performing mice. Restrain my tears, I wish I could, said Baines. I don't know what to do, said Captain Bag. You're very good. Oh, not at all, said Baines Carew. She makes me fire a gun, said Bag, and, at a preconcerted word, climb up a ladder with a flag, like any street-performing bird. She places sugar in my way, in public places calls me sweet. She gives me groundsel every day, and hard canary seed to eat. Oh, woe, oh, sad, oh, dire to tell, said Baines. Be good enough to stop. And senseless on the floor he fell with unpremeditated flop. Said Captain Bag, well, really, I am grieved to think it pains you so. I thank you for your sympathy, but hang it, come, I say, you know. But Baines lay flat upon the floor, convulsed with sympathetic sob. The captain toddled off next door and gave the case to Mr. Cobb. End of ballad number 22. Baines Carew, gentleman from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number twenty three of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Thomas Winterbottom Hance. In all the towns and cities fair on merry England's broad expanse, no swordsman ever could compare with Thomas Winterbottom Hance. The dauntless lad could fairly hew a silken handkerchief in twain, divide a leg of mutton too and this without unwholesome strain. On whole half-sheep with cunning trick his sabre sometimes he'd employ. No bar of lead, however thick, had terrors for the stalwart boy. At Dover daily he'd prepare to hew and slash behind before, which aggravated Monsieur Pierre, who watched him from the Calais shore. It caused good Pierre to swear and dance, the sight annoyed and vexed him so. He was the bravest man in France. He said so, and he ought to know. Regardez donc ce cochon gros, 
se polissant au sacre bleu, sans sable, sans plomb et ses gigots, comme cela m'ennuie enfin, mon Dieu. Il sait que les foulards de soie give no retaliating whack. Les gigots morts n'ont pas de quoi. Le plomb don't ever hit you back. But every day the headstrong lad cut lead and mutton more and more, and every day poor Pierre, half mad, shrieked loud defiance from his shore. Hans had a mother poor and old, a simple, harmless village dame, who crowed and clapped as people told of Winterbottom's rising fame. She said, I'll be upon the spot to see my Tommy's sabre play, and so she left her leafy cot and walked to Dover in a day. Pierre had a doting mother who had heard of his defiant rage. His ma was nearly ninety-two, and rather dressy for her age. At Hans's doings every morn, with sheer delight, his mother cried, and Monsieur Pierre's contemptuous scorn filled his mamma with proper pride. But Hans's powers began to fail, his constitution was not strong, and Pierre, who once was stout and hale, grew thin from shouting all day long. Their mothers saw them pale and wan, maternal anguish tore each breast, and so they met to find a plan to set their offspring's minds at rest. Said Mrs. Hans, Of course I shrinks from bloodshed, ma'am, as you're aware, but still they're better meat, I thinks. Assurement, said Madame Pierre. A sunny spot in sunny France was hit upon for this affair. The ground was picked by Mrs. Hans, the stakes were pitched by Madame Pierre. Said Mrs. H, your work you see, go in, my noble boy, and win. En garde, mon fils, said Madame P. Allons, go on, en garde, begin. The mothers were of decent size, though not particularly tall, but in the sketch that meets your eyes I've been obliged to draw them small. Loud sneered the doughty man of France, ho, 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 ha, 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 ha. The French for pêche, said Thomas Hans. Said Pierre, l'anglais, monsieur, pour bas. Said Mrs. H, come, one, two, three, we're sitting here to see all fair. C'est magnifique, said Madame P, mais pas bleu, ce n'est pas la guerre. Je scorn un faux si lâche que vous, said Pierre, the doughty son of France. I fight not coward foe like you, said our undaunted Tommy Hans. The French for poo, our Tommy cried. L'anglais pour va, the Frenchman crowed. And so, with undiminished pride, each went on his respective road. End of ballad number 23, Thomas Winterbottom Hans, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 24 of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Reverend Micah Sowles The Reverend Micah Sowles, he shouts and yells and howls, he screams, he mouths, he bumps, he foams, he rants, he thumps. 
His armour he has buckled on to wage the regulation war against the stage, and warns his congregation all to shun the presence chamber of the evil one. The subject's sad enough to make him rant and puff, and fortunately, too, his bishop's in a pew. So Reverend Micah claps on extra steam, his eyes are flashing with superior gleam, he is as energetic as can be, for there are fatter livings in that sea. The bishop, when it's o'er, goes through the vestry door, where Micah, very red, is mopping of his head. Pardon, my lord, your soul's excessive zeal. It is a theme on which I strongly feel. The sermon somebody had sent him down from London at a charge of half a crown. The bishop bowed his head, and acquiescing said, I've heard your well-meant rage against the modern stage. A modern theatre, as I heard you say, sows seeds of evil broadcast. Well, it may. But let me ask you, my respected son, pray, have you ever ventured into one? My lord, said Micah, no, I never, never go. What, go and see a play? My goodness gracious, nay! The worthy bishop said, my friend, no doubt, the stage may be the place you make it out. But if my reverend souls you never go, I don't quite understand how you're to know. "'Well, really,' Micah said, "'I've often heard and read, but never go.' "'Do you?' The bishop said, "'I do.' "'That proves me wrong,' said Micah in a trice. "'I thought it all frivolity and vice.' The bishop handed him a printed card. "'Go to a theatre where they play our bard.' The bishop took his leave, rejoicing in his sleeve. The next ensuing day, Sowles went and heard a play. He saw a dreary person on the stage, who mouthed and mugged in simulated rage, who growled and spluttered in a mode absurd, and spoke an English Sowles had never heard. For gaunt was spoken gaunt and haunt transformed to haunt, and wrath pronounced as wrath, and death was changed to death. For hours and hours that dismal actor walked, and talked, and talked, and talked, and talked, till lethargy upon the parson crept, and sleepy Micah Sowles serenely slept. He slept away until the farce that closed the bill had warned him not to stay, and then he went away. I thought my gait ridiculous, said he, my elocution faulty as could be. I thought I mumbled on a matchless plan. I had not seen our great tragedian. Forgive me, if you can, O great tragedian, I own it with a sigh. You're drearier than I. End of ballad number 24, the Reverend Micah Sowles from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 25 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. 
Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. A Discontented Sugar Broker A gentleman of city fame now claims your kind attention. East India broking was his game, his name I shall not mention. No one of finely pointed sense would violate a confidence. And shall I go and do it? No, his name I shall not mention. He had a trusty wife and true, and very cosy quarters, a manager, a boy or two, six clerks and seven porters. A broker must be doing well, as any lunatic can tell, who can employ an active boy, six clerks and seven porters. His knocker advertised no done, no losses made him sulky. He had one sorrow, only one. He was extremely bulky. A man must be, I beg to state, exceptionally fortunate, who owns his chief and only grief is being very bulky. This load, he'd say, I cannot bear. I'm nineteen stone or twenty. Henceforward I'll go in for air and exercise in plenty. Most people think that should it come, they can reduce a bulging tum to measures fair by taking air and exercise in plenty. In every weather, every day, dry, muddy, wet or gritty, he took to dancing all the way from Brompton to the city. You do not often get the chance of seeing sugar brokers dance from their abode in Fulham Road through Brompton to the city. He braved the gay and guileless laugh of children with their nusses, the loud, uneducated chaff of clerks on omnibuses. Against all minor things that rack a nicely balanced mind, I'll back the noisy chaff and ill-bred laugh of clerks on omnibuses. His friends, who heard his money chink, and saw the house he rented, and knew his wife, could never think what made him discontented. It never entered their pure minds that fads are of eccentric kinds, nor would they own that fat alone could make one discontented. Your riches know no kind of pause, your trade is fast advancing, you dance, but not for joy, because you weep as you are dancing. To dance implies that man is glad, to weep implies that man is sad. But here are you who do the two. You weep as you are dancing. His mania soon got noised about and into all the papers. His size increased beyond a doubt for all his reckless capers. It may seem singular to you, but all his friends admit it true. The more he found his figure round, the more he cut his capers. His bulk increased, no matter that, he tried the more to toss it. He never spoke of it as fat, but adipose deposit. Upon my word, it seems to me unpardonable vanity, and worse than that, to call your fat an adipose deposit. At length his brawny knees gave way, and on the carpet sinking, upon his shapeless back he lay, and kicked away like winking. Instead of seeing in his state the figure of unswerving fate, he laboured still to work his will, and kicked away like winking. 
His friends, disgusted with him now, away in silence wended. I hardly like to tell you how this dreadful story ended. The shocking sequel to impart I must employ the limner's art. If you would know, this sketch will show how his exertions ended. Moral I hate to preach, I hate to prate, I'm no fanatic croaker. But learn contentment from the fate of this East India broker. Hear everything a man of taste could ever want, except a waste, and discontent his size anent, and bootless perseverance blind, completely wrecked the peace of mind of this East India broker. End of Ballad number 25, A Discontented Sugar Broker from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 26 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Pantomime Super to His Mask Vast empty shell, impertinent preposterous abortion, with vacant stare and ragged hair, and every feature out of all proportion, embodiment of echoing inanity, excellent type of simpering insanity, unwieldy clumsy nightmare of humanity, I ring thy knell. Tonight thou diest, beast that destroyest my heaven-born identity. Nine weeks of nights before the lights, swamped in thine own preposterous nonentity. I've been ill-treated, cursed, and thrashed diurnally. Credited for the smile you wear externally, I feel disposed to smash thy face infernally, as there thou liest. I've been thy brain, I've been the brain that lit thy dull concavity. The human race invest my face with thine expression of unchecked depravity, invested with a ghastly reciprocity. I've been responsible for thy monstrosity, I for thy wanton blundering ferocity. But not again. Tis time to toll thy knell and that of follies pantomimical. A nine weeks run, and thou hast done all thou canst do to make thyself inimical. Adieu, embodiment of all inanity, excellent type of simpering insanity, unwieldy, clumsy nightmare of humanity. Freed is thy soul. The mask respondeth. O master mine, look thou within thee ere again ill-using me. Art thou aware of nothing there which might abuse thee as thou art abusing me? A brain that mourns thine unredeemed rascality? A soul that weeps at thy threadbare morality, Both grieving that their individuality is merged in thine.
End of Ballad Number Twenty Six. The Pantomime Super to His Mask from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad Number Twenty Seven of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Force of Argument. Lord B. was a nobleman bold who came of illustrious stocks. He was thirty or forty years old and several feet in his socks. To Turnip Topville by the sea this elegant nobleman went, for that was a borough that he was anxious to represent. At local assemblies he danced until he felt thoroughly ill. He waltzed and he galloped and lanced and threaded the mazy quadrille. The maidens of Turnip Topville were simple, ingenuous, pure, and they all worked away with a will the nobleman's heart to secure. Two maidens, all others beyond, endeavoured his cares to dispel. The one was the lively Anne Pond, the other sad Mary Morell. Anne Pond had determined to try and carry the Earl with a rush. Her principal feature was I, her greatest accomplishment, Gush. And Mary chose this for her play. Whenever he looked in her eye, she'd blush and turn quickly away, and flitter and flutter and sigh. It was noticed he constantly sighed as she worked out the scheme she had planned, a fact he endeavoured to hide with his aristocratical hand. Old Pond was a farmer, they say, and so was old Tommy Morell. In a humble and pottering way they were doing exceedingly well. They both of them carried by vote the Earl was a dangerous man. So nervously clearing his throat one morning old Tommy began— my daughter's no pratty young doll. I'm a plain-spoken Zomerzet man. Now what do he mean by my Paul, and what do he mean by his Anne? Said B, I will give you my bond, I mean them uncommonly well. Believe me, my excellent pond, and credit me, worthy Morell. It's quite indisputable, for I'll prove it with singular ease. You shall have it in Barbara, or Selarent, whichever you please. You see, when an anchorite bows to the yoke of intentional sin, if the state of the country allows, homogeny always steps in. It's a highly aesthetical bond, as any mere ploughboy can tell. Of course, replied puzzled old Pond. I see, said old Tommy Morell. Very good, then, continued the Lord, when it's fooled to the top of its bent, with a sweep of a Damocles sword the web of intention is rent. That's patent to all of us here, as any mere schoolboy can tell. Pond answered, Of course it's quite clear. And so did that humbug Morell. Its tones esoteric in force. I trust that I make myself clear. Morell only answered, of course, while Pond slowly muttered, Hear, hear. Volition, celestial prize, pellucid as porphyry cell, is based on a principle wise. 
"'Quite so,' exclaimed Pond and Morel. "'From what I have said you will see that I couldn't wed either. In fine, by nature's unchanging decree, your daughters could never be mine. Go home to your pigs and your ricks. My hands of the matter I've rinsed.' So they take up their hats and their sticks, and Exe and Ambo, convinced. End of ballad number 27, The Force of Argument, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 28 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Ghost, the Gallant, the Gale, and the Goblin O'er unreclaimed suburban clays, some years ago, were hoblin, an elderly ghost of easy ways, and an influential goblin. The ghost was a sombre spectral shape, a fine old five-act fogey. The goblin imp, a lithe young ape, a fine low-comedy bogey. And as they exercised their joints, promoting quick digestion, they talked on several curious points, and raised this delicate question. Which of us two is number one, the ghosty or the goblin? And o'er the point they raised in fun, they fairly fell a-squabbling. They'd barely speak, and each, in fine, grew more and more reflective, each thought his own particular line by chalks the more effective. At length they settled some one should by each of them be haunted, and so arranged that either could exert his prowess vaunted. The quaint against the statuesque, by competition lawful, the goblin backed the quaint grotesque, the ghost the grandly awful. Now, said the goblin, here's my plan, in attitude commanding, I see a stalwart Englishman by yonder tailor's standing. The very fittest man on earth my influence to try on, of gentle, perhaps of noble birth, and dauntless as a lion. Now wrap yourself within your shroud, remain in easy hearing, observe, you'll hear him scream aloud when I begin appearing. The imp, with yell unearthly, wild, threw off his dark enclosure. His dauntless victim looked and smiled with singular composure. For hours he tried to daunt the youth, for days indeed, but vainly, the stripling smiled. To tell the truth, the stripling smiled inanely. For weeks the goblin weird and wild that noble stripling haunted. For weeks the stripling stood and smiled, unmoved and all undaunted. The sombre ghost exclaimed, Your plan has failed you, goblin, plainly. Now watch yon hardy Heeland man, so stalwart and ungainly. These are the men who chase the row, whose footsteps never falter, who bring with them where'er they go a smack of old Sir Walter. Of such as he, the men sublime, who lead their troops victorious, whose deeds go down to after-time enshrined in annals glorious. Of such as he, the bard has said, Hech throffel rolty rocky, with thecht a crune clapperhead, and fash we unco porky. He'll faint away when I appear upon his native heather, 
or perhaps he'll only scream with fear, or perhaps the two together. The spectre showed himself alone to do his ghostly battling, with curdling groan and dismal moan and lots of chains a-rattling. But no, the chiel's stout Gaelic stuff withstood all ghostly harrying, his fingers closed upon the snuff which upwards he was carrying. For days that ghost declined to stir a foggy, shapeless giant. For weeks that splendid officer stared back again defiant. Just as the Englishman returned the goblin's vulgar staring, just so the Scotchman boldly spurned the ghost's unmannered scaring. For several years the ghostly twain these Britons bold have haunted, but all their efforts are in vain, their victims stand undaunted. This very day the imp and ghost whose powers the imp derided stand each at his allotted post. The bet is undecided. End of ballad number 28 the Ghost, the Gallant, the Gale, and the Goblin from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number twenty nine of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Phantom Curate, a Fable. A bishop once, I will not name his see, Annoyed his clergy in the mode conventional. From pulpit shackles never set them free, And found a sin where sin was unintentional. All pleasures ended in abuse auricular, The bishop was so terribly particular. Though on the whole a wise and upright man, He sought to make of human pleasures clearances, And form his priests on that much-lauded plan which pays undue attention to appearances. He couldn't do good deeds without a psalm in em, although in truth he bore away the palm in em. Enraged to find a deacon at a dance, or catch a curate at some mild frivolity, he sought by open censure to enhance their dread of joining harmless social jollity. Yet he enjoyed a fact of notoriety, the ordinary pleasures of society. One evening, sitting at a pantomime, forbidden treat to those who stood in fear of him, roaring at jokes sans meter, sense, or rhyme, he turned, and saw immediately in rear of him, his peace of mind upsetting and annoying it, a curate also heartily enjoying it. Again, twas Christmas Eve, and to enhance his children's pleasure in their harmless rollicking, he, like a good old fellow, stood to dance, when something checked the current of his frolicking. That curate, with a maid he treated lovely, stood up and figured with him in the coverly. Once, yielding to an universal choice, the company's demand was an emphatic one, for the old bishop had a glorious voice. In a quartet he joined, an operatic one. Harmless enough, though ne'er a word of grace in it, when, lo, that curate came and took the bass in it. One day, when passing through a quiet street, he stopped a while and joined a punch's gathering, 
and chuckled more than solemn folk think meet to see that gentleman his judy lathering and heard as punch was being treated penally that phantom curate laughing all hyenally now at a picnic mid fair golden curls bright eyes straw hats potines that fit amazingly a croquet bout is planned by all the girls and he consenting speaks of croquet praisingly but suddenly declines to play at all in it the curate fiend has come to take a ball in it next when at quiet seaside village freed from cares episcopal and ties monarchical he grows his beard and smokes his fragrant weed in manner anything but hierarchical he sees and fixes an unearthly stare on it that curate's face with half a yard of hair on it at length he gave a charge and spake this word because your curates to enjoyment urge ye may to check their harmless pleasurings absurd what laymen do without reproach my clergy may he spake and lo at this concluding word of him the curate vanished no one since has heard of him end of ballad number 29 the phantom curate a fable from the bab ballads this recording is in the public domain ballad number 30 of the bab ballads by w s gilbert read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Sensation Captain No nobler captain ever trod than Captain Parkelbury Todd, so good, so wise, so brave he. But still, as all his friends would own, he had one folly, one alone, this captain in the navy. I do not think I ever knew a man so wholly given to creating a sensation, or perhaps I should in justice say, to what in an Adelphi play is known as situation. He passed his time designing traps to flurry unsuspicious chaps. The taste was his innately. He couldn't walk into a room without ejaculating BOOM, which startled ladies greatly. He'd wear a mask and muffling cloak, not, you will understand, in joke, as some assume disguises. He did it, actuated by a simple love of mystery and fondness for surprises. I need not say he loved a maid, his eloquence threw into shade all others who adored her. The maid, though pleased at first, I know, found after several years or so her startling lover bored her. So when his orders came to sail, she did not faint or scream or wail, or with her tears anoint him. She shook his hand and said, Goodbye, with laughter dancing in her eye, which seemed to disappoint him. But ere he went aboard his boat, he placed around her little throat a ribbon, blue and yellow, on which he hung a double tooth, a simple token this in sooth. Twas all he had, poor fellow. I often wonder, he would say, when very, very far away, if Angelina wears it. A plan has entered in my head, 
I will pretend that I am dead and see how Angie bears it. The news he made a messmate tell. His Angelina bore it well. No sign gave she of crazing. But steady as the Inchcape Rock, his Angelina stood the shock with fortitude amazing. She said, some one I must elect poor Angelina to protect from all who wish to harm her. Since worthy Captain Todd is dead, I rather feel inclined to wed a comfortable farmer. A comfortable farmer came, Bassanio Tyler was his name, who had no end of treasure. He said, my noble gal be mine. The noble gal did not decline, but simply said, with pleasure. When this was told to Captain Todd, at first he thought it rather odd, and felt some perturbation. But very long he did not grieve, he thought he could away perceive to such a situation. I'll not reveal myself, said he, till they are both in the ecclesiastical arena. Then suddenly I will appear, and paralyzing them with fear, demand my Angelina. At length arrived the wedding day, accoutred in the usual way appeared the bridal body. The worthy clergyman began, when in the gallant captain ran and cried, Behold your toddy! The bridegroom perhaps was terrified, and also possibly the bride. The bridesmaids were affrighted. But Angelina, noble soul, contrived her feelings to control, and really seemed delighted. "'My bride,' said gallant Captain Todd, "'she's mine, uninteresting clod, "'my own, my darling charmer.' "'Oh, dear,' said she, "'you're just too late. "'I married to, I beg to state, "'this comfortable farmer.' "'Indeed,' the farmer said, "'she's mine. "'You've been and cut it far too fine.' "'I see,' said Todd, "'I'm beaten.' And so he went to sea once more, sensation he for A forswore, and married on her native shore a lady whom he'd met before, a lovely Otaheitan. End of ballad number 30, The Sensation Captain, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number thirty one of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Tempora mutantur. Letters, 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 some that please and some that bore, some that threaten prison fetters, metaphorically fetters such as bind insolvent debtors. Invitations by the score. One from Cogson, Wiles, and Rayler, my attorney's off the strand. One from Copperblock, my tailor, my unreasonable tailor, one in Flag's disgusting hand. One from Ephraim and Moses, wanting coin without a doubt. I should like to pull their noses, their uncompromising noses. One from Alice with the roses. Ah, I know what that's about. Time was when I waited, waited for the missives that she wrote. Humble postman execrated, loudly, deeply execrated, 
when I heard I wasn't fated to be gladdened with a note. Time was when I'd not have bartered of her little pen a dip for a peerage duly gartered, for a peerage starred and gartered with a palace office chartered or a secretaryship. But the time for that is over, and I wish we'd never met. I'm afraid I've proved a rover, I'm afraid a heartless rover. Quarters in a place like Dover tend to make a man forget. Bills for carriages and horses, bills for wine and light cigar, matters that concern the forces, news that may affect the forces, news affecting my resources, much more interesting are. And the tiny little paper with the words that seem to run from her little fingers taper, they are very small and taper, by the tailor and the draper are in interest outdone, and unopened its remaining, I can read her gentle hope, her entreaties uncomplaining, she was always uncomplaining, her devotion never waning, through the little envelope. End of Ballad number 31, Tempora Mutantua, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 32 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. At a Pantomime by a Bilious One. An actor sits in doubtful gloom, his stock in trade unfurled, in a damp funereal dressing room in the Theatre Royal world. He comes to town at Christmas time and braves its icy breath to play in that favourite pantomime Harlequin, Life and Death. A hoary flowing wig his weird unearthly cranium caps. He hangs a long benevolent beard on a pair of empty chaps. To smooth his ghastly features down the actor's art he cribs a long and a flowing padded gown bedecks his rattling ribs. He cries, Go on, begin, begin, turn on the light of lime. I'm dressed for jolly old Christmas in a favourite pantomime. The curtain's up, the stage all black, time and the year nigh sped, time as an advertising quack. The old year nearly dead. The wand of time is waved, and lo, revealed old Christmas stands, and little children chuckle and crow, and laugh and clap their hands. The cruel old scoundrel brightens up at the death of the olden year, and he waves a gorgeous golden cup and bids the world good cheer. The little ones hail the festive king, no thought can make them sad. Their laughter comes with a sounding ring, they clap and crow like mad. They only see in the humbug old a holiday every year, and handsome gifts and joys untold, and unaccustomed cheer. The old ones, palsied, blear and hoar, their breasts in anguish beat, 
They've seen him seventy times before. How well they know the cheat. They've seen that ghastly pantomime. They've felt its blighting breath. They know that rollicking Christmas time meant cold and want and death. Starvation, poor law union fare, and deadly cramps and chills. And illness, illness everywhere, and crime and Christmas bills. They know old Christmas well, I ween, those men of ripened age. They've often, often, often seen that actor off the stage. They see in his gay rotundity a clumsy, stuffed-out dress. They see in the cup he waves on high a tinseled emptiness. Those aged men so lean and wan, they've seen it all before. They know they'll see the charlatan but twice or three times more. And so they bear with dance and song, and crimson foil and green. They wearily sit, and grimly long for the transformation scene. End of ballad number 32 At a Pantomime by a Bilious One From the Bab Ballads This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 33 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. King Borea Bungalee Boo King Borea Bungalee Boo was a man-eating African swell. His sigh was a hullabaloo, his whisper a horrible yell, a horrible, horrible yell. Four subjects, and all of them male, to Borea doubled the knee. They were once on a far larger scale, but he had eaten the balance, you see. Scale and balance is punning, you see. There was haughty Pishtash Poobah, there was lumbering Doodle-Dum-Day, despairing Alackaday ah, and good little Tootle-Tum-Tay, exemplary Tootle-Tum-Tay. One day there was grief in the crew, for they hadn't a morsel of meat, and Borea Bungalee Boo was dying for something to eat. Come, provide me with something to eat. Alack a day, famished I feel. Oh, good little Tootle-Tum-Tay, where on earth shall I look for a meal, for I haven't no dinner to-day, not a morsel of dinner to-day. Dear Tootle-Tum, what shall we do? Come, get us a meal, or in truth, if you don't, we shall have to eat you, O adorable friend of our youth, thou beloved little friend of our youth. And he answered, O bungalee boo, for a moment I hope you will wait. Tippy-wippity toll-the-roll-loo is the queen of a neighbouring state, a remarkably neighbouring state. Tippy-wippity toll-the-roll-loo, she would pickle deliciously cold, and her four pretty Amazons, too, are enticing, and not very old. Twenty-seven is not very old. There is neat little titty lay there is rollicking tralla there is jocular waggity way, there is musical do-re-mi-fa, there's the nightingale do-re-mi-fa. So the forces of Bungalee Boo marched forth in a terrible row, 
and the ladies who fought for Queen Lou prepared to encounter the foe, this dreadful insatiate foe. But they sharpened no weapons at all, and they poisoned no arrows, not they. They made ready to conquer or fall in a totally different way, an entirely different way. With a crimson and pearly white dye, they endeavoured to make themselves fair. With black they encircled each eye, and with yellow they painted their hair. It was wool, but they thought it was hair. And the forces they met in the field. And the men of King Borea said, Amazonians immediately yield. And their arrows they drew to the head, yes, drew them right up to the head. But jocular waggity way, ogle doodle dum day, which was wrong, and neat little titiful lay, said tootle tum, you go along, you naughty old dear, go along. And rollicking tral la ra la, tapped a lackaday ah with her fan, and musical do re mi fa said, pish, go away, you bad man, go away, you delightful young man. And the Amazons simpered and sighed, and they ogled and giggled and flushed, and they opened their pretty eyes wide, and they chuckled and flirted and blushed, at least if they could they'd have blushed. But haughty pish tush bar said, Alack-a-day, what does this mean? And despairing alack-a-day ah said, They think us uncommonly green, ha-ha, most uncommonly green. Even blundering doodle-dum-day was insensible quite to their leers, and said good little tootle-tum-tay, It's your blood we desire, pretty dears. We have come for our dinners, my dears. And the queen of the Amazons fell to borry a bungalee-boo. In a mouthful he gulped with a yell, tippy-whippity toll-the-roll-loo, the pretty queen toll-the-roll-loo. And neat little titiful day was eaten by pish Pooh bar and light-hearted waggity way by dismal alack-a-day ah despairing alack-a-day ah and rollicking tralla was eaten by doodledum day and musical do re mi fa by good little tootletum tay exemplary tootletum tay End of Ballad number 33, King Borea Bungalee Boo, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 34 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Periwinkle Girl I've often thought that headstrong youths of decent education Determine all important truths with strange precipitation. The ever-ready victims they of logical illusions, And in a self-assertive way they jump at strange conclusions. Now take my case. Ere sorrow could my ample forehead wrinkle, I had determined that I should not care to be a winkle. A winkle, I would oft advance, with readiness provoking, can seldom flirt and never dance, or soothe his mind by smoking. In short, I spurned the Shelley joy, and spoke with strange decision. Men pointed to me as a boy who held them in derision. But I was young, too young by far, or I had been more wary. I knew not then that winkles are the stock-in-trade of Mary. 
I had not watched her sunlight blithe, as o'er their shells it dances. I've seen those winkles almost writhe beneath her beaming glances. Of slighting all the winkly brood I surely had been cherry if I had known they formed the food and stock-in-trade of Mary. Both high and low and great and small fell prostrate at her tootsies. They all were noblemen, and all had balances at cootsies. Dukes with the lovely maiden dealt, Duke Bailey and Duke Humphy, who ate her winkles till they felt exceedingly uncomfy. Duke Bailey greatest wealth computes, and sticks, they say, at no thing. He wears a pair of golden boots and silver underclothing. Duke Humphy, as I understand, though mentally acuter, his boots are only silver and his underclothing pewter. A third adorer had the girl, a man of lowly station, a miserable grovelling earl besought her approbation. This humble cad she did refuse with much contempt and loathing. He wore a pair of leather shoes and cambric underclothing. Ha ha! she cried, upon my word. Well, really, come, I never. Oh, go along, it's too absurd. My goodness, did you ever? Two dukes would Mary make a bride, and from her foes defend her. Well, not exactly that, they cried. We offer guilty splendour. We do not offer marriage right, so please dismiss the notion. Oh, dear, said she, that alters quite the state of my emotion. The earl he up and says, says he, dismiss them to their orgies, for I am game to marry thee quite regular at St. George's. He'd had, it happily befell, a decent education. His views would have befitted well a far superior station. His sterling worth had worked a cure. She never heard him grumble. She saw his soul was good and pure, although his rank was humble. Her views of earldoms and their lot all underwent expansion. Come, virtue in an earldom's cot, go vice in ducal mansion. End of ballad number 34, The Periwinkle Girl, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 35 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman Thompson Green and Harriet Hale To be sung to the air of An Horrible Tale O list to this incredible tale Of Thompson Green and Harriet Hale It's truth in one remark you'll sum Twaddle, 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 twum. O Thompson Green was an auctioneer, and made three hundred pounds a year, and Harriet Hale, most strange to say, gave pianoforte lessons at a sovereign a day. O Thompson Green, I may remark, met Harriet Hale in Regent's Park, where he, in a casual kind of way, spoke of the extraordinary beauty of the day. They met again, and strange, though true, he courted her for a month or two. Then to her pa he said, says he, Old man, I love your daughter, and your daughter worships me. Their names were regularly banned, 
The wedding day was settled, and I've ascertained by dint of search they were married on the quiet at St. Mary Abbot's church. Oh, list to this incredible tale of Thompson Green and Harriet Hale. It's truth in one remark you'll sum. Twaddle, 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 twum. That very selfsame afternoon they started on their honeymoon, and, oh, astonishment, took flight to a pretty little cottage close to Shanklin, Isle of Wight. But now, you'll doubt my word, I know, in a month they both returned, and lo, astounding fact, this happy pair took a gentlemanly residence in Canonbury Square. They led a weird and reckless life, they dined each day, this man and wife, pray disbelieve it if you please, on a joint of meat, a pudding, and a little bit of cheese. In time came those maternal joys which take the form of girls or boys, and strange to say, of each that one, a tiddy-iddy daughter and a tiddy-iddy son. Oh, list to this incredible tale of Thompson Green and Harriet Hale! It's truth in one remark you'll sum— Twaddle, 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 twum. My name for truth is gone, I fear, but monstrous as it may appear, they let their drawing-room one day to an eligible person in the cotton-broking way. Whenever Thompson Green fell sick, his wife called in a doctor quick, from whom some words like these would come, Fiat mist amendum hostis in a cochlearium. For thirty years this curious pair hung out in Canonbury Square, and somehow wonderful to say, they loved each other dearly in a quiet sort of way. Well, Thompson Green fell ill and died, for just a year his widow cried, and then her heart she gave away to the eligible lodger in the cotton-broking way. Oh, list to this incredible tale of Thompson Green and Harriet Hale, it's truth in one remark you'll sum. Twaddle, 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 twum. End of ballad number 35. Thompson Green and Harriet Hale from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 36 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman Bob Poulter Bob Poulter was a navvy, and his hands were coarse and dirty too. His homely face was rough and tanned. His time of life was thirty-two. He lived among a working clan, a wife he hadn't got at all, a decent, steady, sober man, no saint, however, not at all. He smoked, but in a modest way, because he thought he needed it. He drank a pot of beer a day, and sometimes he exceeded it. At times he'd pass with other men a loud convivial night or two, with very likely now and then on Saturdays a fight or two. But still he was a sober soul, a labour-never-shirking man, who paid his way. Upon the whole, a decent English working man. One day, when at the Nelson's head, for which he may be blamed of you, a holy man appeared and said, Oh, Robert, I'm ashamed of you. 
He laid his hand on Robert's beer before he could drink up any, and on the floor with sigh and tear he poured the pot of threepenny. Oh, Robert, at this very bar a truth you'll be discovering. A good and evil genius are around your noddle hovering. They both are here to bid you shun the other one's society. For total abstinence is one, the other inebriety. He waved his hand, a vapour came, a wizard polter reckoned him. A bogey rose, and called his name, and with his finger beckoned him. The monster's salient points to some, his heavy breath was portery, his glowing nose suggested rum, his eyes were gin and watery. His dress was torn, for dregs of ale and slops of gin had rusted it. His pimpled face was wan and pale, where filth had not encrusted it. "'Come, Poulter,' said the fiend, "'begin, and keep the bowl a-flowing on. A working man needs pints of gin to keep his clockwork going on.' Bob shuddered. "'Ah, you've made a miss if you take me for one of you. You filthy beast, get out of this. Bob Poulter don't want none of you.' The demon gave a drunken shriek, and crept away in stealthiness. And lo, instead, a person sleek, who seemed to burst with healthiness. In me, as your adviser hints, of abstinence you've got a type. Of Mr. Tweedy's pretty prince, I am the happy prototype. If you abjure the social toast and pipes and such frivolities, you possibly some day may boast my prepossessing qualities. Bob rubbed his eyes and made him blink. You almost make me tremble, you. If I abjure fermented drink, shall I indeed resemble you? And will my whiskers curl so tight, my cheeks grow smug and muttony, my face become so red and white, my coat so blue and buttony? Will trousers such as yours array extremities inferior? Will chubbiness assert its sway all over my exterior? In this my unenlightened state, to work in heavy boots I comes. Will pumps henceforward decorate my tiddle-toddle tootsicums? And shall I get so plump and fresh, and look no longer seedily? My skin will henceforth fit my flesh so tightly and so tweedily? The phantom said, You'll have all this, you'll know no kind of huffiness. Your life will be one chubby bliss, one long unruffled puffiness. Be off, said irritated Bob. Why come you here to bother one? You pharisaical old snob, you're wuss almost than t'other one. I takes my pipe, I takes my pot, and drunk I'm never seen to be. I'm no teetotaler or sot, and as I am, I mean to be. End of ballad number 36, Bob Poulter from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 37 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert. 
Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Story of Prince Agib Strike the concertina's melancholy string, Blow the spirit-stirring harp like anything, Let the piano's martial blast rouse the echoes of the past, For of Agib, prince of Tartary, I sing. Of Agib, who amid Tartaric scenes Wrote a lot of ballet music in his teens, His gentle spirit rolls in the melody of souls, Which is pretty, but I don't know what it means. Of Agib, who could readily at sight Strum a march upon the loud theodolite, He would diligently play on the zoetrope all day, And blow the gay pantechnicon all night. One winter, I am shaky in my dates, Came two starving Tartar minstrels to his gates. Oh, Allah be obeyed, how infernally they played! I remember that they called themselves the Waits. Oh, that day of sorrow, misery, and rage, I shall carry to the catacombs of age, Photographically lined on the tablet of my mind, When a yesterday has faded from its page. Alas, Prince Agib went and asked them in, Gave them beer and eggs and sweets and scent and tin, And when, as snobs would say, they had put it all away, He requested them to tune up and begin. Though its icy horror chill you to the core, I will tell you what I never told before. The consequences true of that awful interview, For I listened at the keyhole in the door. They played him a sonata, let me see, Medulla oblongata, key of G. Then they began to sing that extremely lovely thing, Scherzando, Marnon Troppo, P.P.P. He gave them money, more than they could count, Sent from a most ingenious little fount, More beer in little kegs, Many dozen hard-boiled eggs, And goodies to a fabulous amount. Now follows the dim horror of my tale, And I feel I'm growing gradually pale, For even at this day, though its sting has passed away, When I venture to remember it, I quail. The elder of the brothers gave a squeal, All overish it made me for to feel. O oh, prince, he says, says he, If a prince indeed you be, I've a mystery I'm going to reveal. O oh, listen, if you'd shun a horrid death, To what the gent who's speaking to you saith. No waits in truth are we, As you fancy that we be, For, to ramble, I am Alec, this is Beth. Said Agib, Oh, accursed of your kind, I have heard that ye are men of evil mind. Beth gave a dreadful shriek, But before he had time to speak, I was mercilessly collared from behind. In number ten or twelve, or even more, They fastened me full length upon the floor. On my face extended flat, I was walloped with a cat For listening at the keyhole of a door. Oh, the horror of that agonizing thrill! I can feel the place in frosty weather still. For a week from ten to four I was fastened to the floor While a mercenary whopped me with a will. They branded me and broke me on a wheel, And they left me in an hospital to heal. 
and upon my solemn word I have never, never heard what those Tartars had determined to reveal. But that day of sorrow, misery, and rage I shall carry to the catacombs of age, photographically lined on the tablet of my mind, when a yesterday has faded from its page. End of ballad number 37, The Story of Prince Agib from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 38 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Ellen McJones, Aberdeen. Macpherson Clonglockety Angus MacLan was the son of an elderly labouring man. You've guessed him a Scotchman, shrewd reader, at sight, and perhaps altogether shrewd reader, you're right. From the bonny blue forth to the lovely Deeside, round by Dingwall and Roth to the mouth of the Clyde, there wasn't a child or a woman or man who could pipe with Clonglockety Angus MacLan. No other could wake such detestable groans with reed and with chaunter, with bag and with drones. All day and all night he delighted the cheels with sniggering peabrocks and jiggerty reels. He'd clamber a mountain and squat on the ground, and the neighbouring maidens would gather around to list to the pipes and to gaze in his een, especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. All loved their MacLan, save a Sassenach brute, who came to the Highlands to fish and to shoot. He dressed himself up in a Highlander way, though his name it was Patterson Corby Torbay. Torbay had incurred a good deal of expense to make him a Scotchman in every sense, but this is a matter you'll readily own that isn't a question of tailors alone. A Sassenach chief may be bonily built, he may purchase a sporran, a bonnet and kilt, stick a skein in his hose, wear an acre of stripes, but he cannot assume an affection for pipes. Clonglockety's pipings all night and all day quite frenzied poor Patterson Corby Torbay. The girls were amused at his singular spleen, especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. Macpherson Clonglockety Angus, my lad, with peabrocks and reels you are driving me mad. If you really must play on that cursed affair, my goodness, play something resembling an air. Boiled over the blood of Macpherson MacLan, the clan of Clonglockety rose as one man, for all were enraged at the insult I ween, especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. Let's show, said MacLan, to this Sassenach loon, that the bagpipes can play him a regular tune. Let's see, said MacLan, as he thoughtfully sat. In my cottage is easy. I'll practice at that. He blew at his cottage and blew with a will for a year, seven months, and a fortnight until, you'll hardly believe it, MacLan, I declare, elicited something resembling an air. It was wild, it was fitful, as wild as the breeze. It wandered about into several keys. It was jerky, spasmodic, and harsh, I'm aware. But still it distinctly suggested an air. 
The Sassenach screamed and the Sassenach danced, He shrieked in his agony, bellowed and pranced, And the maidens who gathered rejoiced at the scene, Especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. Hech gather, hech gather, hech gather around, And fill all ye lugs with the exquisite sound, an air frae the bagpipes, beat that if you can, Hurrah for Clonglockety Angus MacLan. The fame of his piping spread over the land, Respectable widows proposed for his hand, And maidens came flocking to sit on the green, Especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. One morning the fidgety Sassenach swore he'd stand it no longer, he drew his claymore, and, this was, I think, in extremely bad taste, divided Clonglockety close to the waist. Oh, loud were the wailings for Angus MacLan, oh, deep was the grief for that excellent man. The maids stood aghast at the horrible scene, especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. It sorrowed poor Patterson, Corbett, or Bay to find them take on in this serious way. He pitied the poor little fluttering birds, and solaced their souls with the following words. "'Oh, maidens,' said Patterson, touching his hat, "'don't blubber, my dears, for a fellow like that. Observe, I'm a very superior man, a much better fellow than Angus MacLan.' They smiled when he winked and addressed them as dears, and they all of them vowed as they dried up their tears a pleasanter gentleman never was seen, especially Ellen McJones Aberdeen. End of ballad number 38 Ellen McJones Aberdeen from the Bab Ballads This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number thirty nine of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Peter the Wag Policeman Peter Forth I drag from his obscure retreat. He was a merry, genial wag who loved a mad conceit. If he were asked the time of day by Country Bumpkins Green, he not unfrequently would say, A quarter past thirteen. If ever you, by word of mouth, inquired of Mr. Forth, The way to somewhere in the south, He always sent you north. With little boys his beat along, He loved to stop and play. He loved to send old ladies wrong, And teach their feet to stray. He would, in frolic moments, when such mischief bent upon, Take bishops up as betting men, bid ministers move on. Then all the worthy boys he knew he regularly licked, And always collared people who had had their pockets picked. He was not naturally bad or viciously inclined, But from his early youth he had a waggish turn of mind. The men of London grimly scowled, with indignation wild. The men of London gruffly growled, but Peter calmly smiled. Against this minion of the crown the swelling murmurs grew, from Camberwell to Kentish Town, from Rotherhithe to Kew. 
Still humoured he his wagsome turn, And fed in various ways the coward rage That dared to burn, but did not dare to blaze. Still retribution has her day, Although her flight is slow. One day that crusher lost his way Near Poland Street, Soho. The haughty boy, too proud to ask, To find his way resolved, and in the tangle of his task got more and more involved. The men of London, overjoyed, came there to jeer their foe, and flocking crowds completely cloyed the mazes of Soho. The news on telegraphic wires sped swiftly o'er the lee. Excursion trains from distant shires brought myriads to see. For weeks he trod his self-made beats through Newport, Gerard, Bear, Greek, Rupert, Frith, Dean, Poland streets, and into Golden Square. But all alas in vain, for when he tried to learn the way of little boys or grown-up men, they none of them would say. Their eyes would flash, their teeth would grind, their lips would tightly curl, they'd say, Thy way thyself must find, thou misdirecting churl. And similarly also when he tried a foreign friend, Italians answered, Il Balen, the French, no comprehend. The Russ would say with gleaming eye, Sevastopol, and groan. The Greek said, Tupto, Tuptomai, Tupto, Tuptine, Tuptone. To wander thus for many a year, the crusher never ceased. The men of London dropped a tear. Their anger was appeased. At length exploring gangs were sent to find poor Forth's remains. A handsome grant by Parliament was voted for their pains. To seek the poor policeman out, bold spirits volunteered, and when they swore they'd solve the doubt, the men of London cheered. And in a yard, dark, dank, and drear, they found him on the floor. It leads from Richmond Buildings, near the royalty stage door. With brandy cold and brandy hot, they plied him, starved and wet, and made him sergeant on the spot, the men of London's pet. End of ballad number 39, Peter the Wag, from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 40 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Ben Allah Ahmet, or The Fatal Tom. I once did know a Turkish man, whom I upon a two-pair back met. His name it was Effendi Khan Bakshish Pasha Ben Allah Ahmet. A Dr. Brown I also knew, I've often eaten of his bounty. The Turk and he, they lived at Who in Sussex, that delightful county. I knew a nice young lady there. Her name was Emily Macpherson. And though she wore another's hair, she was an interesting person. 
The Turk adored the maid of who, although his harem would have shocked her. But Brown adored that maiden too. He was a most seductive doctor. They'd follow her where'er she'd go, a course of action most improper. She neither knew by sight, and so for neither of them cared a copper. Brown did not know that Turkish male. He might have been his sainted mother. The people in this simple tale are total strangers to each other. One day that Turk he sickened sore, and suffered agonies oppressive. He threw himself upon the floor, and rolled about in pain excessive. It made him moan, it made him groan, and almost wore him to a mummy. Why should I hesitate to own that pain was in his little tummy? At length a doctor came and rung, as Allah Ahmed had desired, who felt his pulse, looked up his tongue, and hemmed and hawed, and then inquired, Where is the pain that long has preyed upon you in so sad a way, sir? The Turk, he giggled, blushed, and said, I don't exactly like to say, sir. Come, nonsense, said good Dr. Brown, so this is Turkish coyness, is it? You must contrive to fight it down. Come, come, sir, please to be explicit. The Turk, he shyly bit his thumb, and coyly blushed like one half-witted. The pain is in my little tum, he whispering at length admitted. Then take you this, and take you that, your blood flows sluggish in its channel. You must get rid of all this fat, and wear my medicated flannel. You'll send for me when you're in need. My name is Brown, your life I've saved it. My rival, shrieked the invalid, and drew a mighty sword and waved it. This to thy weasened Christian pest! Aloud the Turk in frenzy yelled it, and drove right through the doctor's chest the sabre and the hand that held it. The blow was a decisive one, and Dr. Brown grew deadly pasty. Now see the mischief that you've done. You Turks are so extremely hasty. There are two Dr. Browns in who. He's short and stout, I'm tall and wizen. You've been and run the wrong one through. That's how the error has arisen. The accident was thus explained. Apologies were only heard now. At my mistake I'm really pained. I am indeed upon my word now. With me, sir, you shall be interred. A mausoleum grand awaits me. Oh, pray don't say another word. I'm sure that more than compensates me. But perhaps, kind Turk, you're full inside. There's room, said he, for any number. And so they laid them down and died. In proud Stamboul they sleep their slumber. End of ballad number 40 Ben Allah Ahmet or the Fatal Tum from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 41 of the Bab Ballads by W.S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. The Three Kings of Chickaraboo There were three niggers of Chickaraboo, 
Pacifico, bang-bang, pop-chop, who exclaimed one terribly sultry day, Oh, let's be kings, in a humble way. The first was a highly accomplished bones, the next elicited banjo tones, the third was a quiet retiring chap who danced an excellent breakdown flap. We niggers, said they, have formed a plan by which, whenever we like, we can extemporize kingdoms near the beach, and then we'll collar a kingdom each. Three casks from somebody else's stores shall represent our island shores. Their sides the ocean wide shall lave, their heads just topping the briny wave. Great Britain's navy scours the sea, and everywhere her ships they be. She'll recognize our rank, perhaps, when she discovers we're royal chaps. If to her skirts you want to cling, it's quite sufficient that you're a king. She does not push inquiry far to learn what sort of king you are. A ship of several thousand tons, and mounting seventy-something guns, ploughed every year the ocean blue, discovering kings and countries new. The brave Rear Admiral Bailey Pip, commanding that magnificent ship, perceived one day his glasses through the kings that came from Chickaraboo. "'Dear eyes!' said Admiral Pip. "'I see three flourishing islands on our lee.' And, bless me, most remarkable thing, on every island stands a king. Come, lower the admiral's gig, he cried, and over the dancing waves I'll glide, that low obeisance I may do to those three kings of Chickaraboo. The admiral pulled to the island's three, the kings saluted him graciously, the admiral, pleased at his welcome warm, unrolled a printed alliance form. "'Your Majesty, sign me this, I pray. I come in a friendly kind of way. I come, if you please, with the best intents, and Queen Victoria's compliments.' The kings were pleased as they well could be. The most retiring of the three in a cellar flap to his joy gave vent, with a banjo-bones accompaniment. The great Rear Admiral Bailey Pip embarked on board his jolly big ship. Blue Peter flew from his lofty fore, and off he sailed to his native shore. Admiral Pip directly went to the lord at the head of the government, who made him, by a stroke of a quill, Baron de Pip of Piptonville. The College of Heralds' permission yield that he should quarter upon his shield three islands vert on a field of blue, with the pregnant motto Chickaraboo. Ambassadors, yes, and attaches too, are going to sail for Chickaraboo, and see on the good ship's crowded deck a bishop who's going out there on speck. And let us all hope that blissful things may come of alliance with darky kings. And may we never, whatever we do, declare a war with Chickaraboo. End of Ballad Number 41 The Three Kings of Chickaraboo from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. 
Ballad number forty two of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Joe Go Lightly or The First Lord's Daughter. Atar, but poorly prized, long, shambling, and unsightly, thrashed, bullied, and despised, was wretched Joe Go Lightly. He bore a workhouse brand, no pa or ma had claimed him, the beadle found him, and the board of guardians named him. Perhaps some princess's son, a beggar perhaps his mother, he rather thought the one, I rather think the other. He liked his ship at sea, he loved the salt sea water, he worshipped junk, and he adored the first lord's daughter. The first lord's daughter, proud, snubbed earls and viscounts nightly. She sneered at Bart's aloud, and spurned poor Joe Golightly. Whene'er he sailed afar, upon a channel cruise he unpacked his light guitar, and sang this ballad, Boozy. The moon is on the sea, willow, the wind blows towards the lee, willow, But though I sigh and sob and cry, No Lady Jane for me, willow. She says, Twere folly quite, willow, For me to wed a white, willow, Whose lot is cast before the mast, And possibly she's right, willow. His skipper, Captain Joyce, he gave him many a rating, and almost lost his voice from thus expostulating. Lay aft, you lubber, do! What's come to that young man, Joe? Belay, vast heaving you! Do kindly stop that banjo! I wish I do, oh, law, you'd shipped aboard a trader. Are you a sailor or a negro serenader? But still the stricken lad aloft, or on his pillow, Howled forth in accents sad, his aggravating willow. Stern love of duty had been Joyce's chiefest beauty. Says he, I love that lad, but duty, damn it, duty. Twelve months black hole, I say, where daylight never flashes, and always twice a day a good six dozen lashes. But Joseph had a mate, a sailor stout and lusty, a man of low estate, but singularly trusty. Says he, Cheer up, young Joe, I'll tell you what I'm arter. To that fuss lord I'll go and axe him for his darter. To that fuss lord I'll go and say you love her dearly, and Joe said, weeping low, I wish you would, sincerely. That sailor to that lord went, soon as he had landed, And of his own accord an interview demanded. Says he, with seaman's roll, My captain, what's a tartar, Gov Joe twelve months black hole for lovering your darter. He loves Miss Lady Jane, I own she is his betters, but if you'll jine them twain, they'll free him from his fetters. And if so be as how you'll let her come aboard ship, I'll take her with me now. Get out, 
remarked his lordship. That honest tar repaired to Joe upon the billow, and told him how he'd fared. Joe only whispered, Willow. And for that dreadful crime, young sailors learn to shun it. He's working out his time. In six months he'll have done it. End of ballad number 42 Joe Golightly or the First Lord's Daughter from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 43 of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert. Read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. To the Terrestrial Globe by a Miserable Wretch. Roll on, thou ball, roll on, Through pathless realms of space, roll on. What though I'm in a sorry case, What though I cannot meet my bills, What though I suffer toothache's ills, What though I swallow countless pills, Never you mind, roll on. Roll on, thou ball, roll on, through seas of inky air, roll on. It's true I've got no shirts to wear, It's true my butcher's bill is due, It's true my prospects all look blue, But don't let that unsettle you, Never you mind, roll on. It rolls on. End of ballad number 43 to the Terrestrial Globe by a Miserable Wretch from the Bab Ballads. This recording is in the public domain. Ballad number 44 of the Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read for LibriVox.org by Graham Redman. Gentle Alice Brown It was a robber's daughter, and her name was Alice Brown, her father was the terror of a small Italian town. Her mother was a foolish, weak, but amiable old thing. But it isn't of her parents that I'm going for to sing. As Alice was a-sitting at her window-sill one day, A beautiful young gentleman he chanced to pass that way. She cast her eyes upon him, and he looked so good and true that she thought, I could be happy with a gentleman like you. And every morning past her house that cream of gentlemen, She knew she might expect him at a quarter unto ten. A sorter in the custom-house, it was his daily road. The custom-house was fifteen minutes' walk from her abode. But Alice was a pious girl, who knew it wasn't wise To look at strange young sorters with expressive purple eyes. So she sought the village priest, to whom her family confessed, The priest by whom their little sins were carefully assessed. O oh, holy father, Alice said, t'would grieve you, would it not, To discover that I was a most disreputable lot, of all unhappy sinners I'm the most unhappy one. The padre said, Whatever have you been and gone and done? I have helped mamma to steal a little kiddie from its dad. 
I've assisted dear papa in cutting up a little lad. I've planned a little burglary and forged a little cheque, and slain a little baby for the coral on its neck. The worthy pastor heaved a sigh and dropped a silent tear, and said, You mustn't judge yourself too heavily, my dear. It's wrong to murder babies, little corals for to fleece, but sins like these one expiates at half a crown apiece. Girls will be girls, you're very young and flighty in your mind. Old heads upon young shoulders we must not expect to find. We mustn't be too hard upon these little girlish tricks. Let's see, five crimes at half a crown, exactly twelve and six. Oh, father, little Alice cried, your kindness makes me weep. You do these little things for me so singularly cheap. Your thoughtful liberality I never can forget. But, oh, there is another crime I haven't mentioned yet. A pleasant-looking gentleman with pretty purple eyes I've noticed at my window as I've sat a-catching flies. He passes by it every day, as certain as can be. I blush to say I've winked at him, and he has winked at me. For shame, said Father Paul, my erring daughter, on my word, this is the most distressing news that I have ever heard. Why, naughty girl, your excellent papa has pledged your hand to a promising young robber, the lieutenant of his band. This dreadful piece of news will pain your worthy parents so. They are the most remunerative customers I know. For many, many years they've kept starvation from my doors. I never knew so criminal a family as yours. The common country folk in this insipid neighbourhood have nothing to confess. They're so ridiculously good. And if you marry anyone respectable at all, why, you'll reform, and what will then become of Father Paul? The worthy priest he up and drew his cowl upon his crown, and started off in haste to tell the news to Robber Brown, to tell him how his daughter, who was now for marriage fit, had winked upon a sorter who reciprocated it. Good Robber Brown, he muffled up his anger pretty well. He said, I have a notion, and that notion I will tell. I will nab this gay young sorter, terrify him into fits, and get my gentle wife to chop him into little bits. I've studied human nature, and I know a thing or two. Though a girl may fondly love a living gent, as many do, a feeling of disgust upon her senses there will fall when she looks upon his body chopped particularly small. He traced that gallant sorter to a still suburban square. He watched his opportunity and seized him unaware. He took a life-preserver and he hit him on the head, and Mrs. Brown dissected him before she went to bed. And pretty little Alice grew more settled in her mind. She never more was guilty of a weakness of the kind, until at length good robber Brown bestowed her pretty hand on the promising young robber, the lieutenant of his band.
End of Ballad Number Forty Four, Gentle Alice Brown, and of the Bab Ballads. <laughs>